0: But we've been looking at uh, Matthew chapter 13, and, and we've been talking about the parables of Christ. And uh, over the past several weeks, as we've spent time in this chapter dealing with just the first three parables so far, the, the first two parables in Matthew chapter 13 in verses 31 and 32 talk about the influence of the kingdom and what that influence will have on the world as we know it. And uh, we looked First of all, last week at the first parable, and today we'll look at the second parable, um, beginning in verse uh, 33 to 34 there. But I just want to read the text for us so we're kind of uh, familiar with it. And uh, I'm going to read them both together, beginning in verse 31 of Matthew chapter 13. The the, The word says, Another parable he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. And we looked at that parable last week. The second parable we'll look at today. He says in verse 33, another parable he spoke to them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. And you say, wow, that's, that's just one verse there. <laughs> how are we going to talk about that today? Well, we're going to delve into that and hopefully understand what Christ is speaking about. But in those two parables, he's speaking about influence. He's talking about influence and how the kingdom of God will influence influence. The world. And last week, as we looked at the mustard seed, which is one of the smallest seeds, I think the orchid is the only other seed that's smaller than that, but Christ was referencing seeds of agriculture so they could eat it, not plants which you pick, so he is correct, the mustard seed is the smallest of all those kind of seeds, and we, we noticed last week that we talked about how small beginnings with God can have great conclusions. And that's what happened with the mustard seed. Back home, we have a, a pond in our uh, front yard. I think we still have a pond, right? It's, kinda <laughs> it's a hole in the ground with water in it. And uh, I remember when I was little, I used to go down there and we used to skip rocks. And you'd throw rocks in the pond. And some days, you know, that, that pond would just be like glass. And you'd throw a pebble out there or a rock and all of a sudden it would just ripple out. And it would touch every shore around that pond. It didn't just go to one side. That small little pebble made an impact, influenced that water to the degree that it touched all the the outward walls of that pond. And what Christ is saying here in these parables about the kingdom is that it's going to start small. It's going to start small. But ultimately, its influence will be global. And he's saying that the kingdom will grow to its fulfillment And it will ultimately have the impact that he says it will have in his word. Its power will become worldwide. Now, remember, he's telling this to, you know, a ragtag group of disciples. Just 12 guys. There's not a church established here. There's not Christianity as we know it. They're the beginning of all this. And he said that this is going to happen. So it's kind of a a parable that kind of is prophetic in a lot of ways. And he wants them to be encouraged by this parable. And just to let you know, we live in the time when this parable is actually being fulfilled today. Never in the history of the world has Christianity had the global influence that it has today. And that global influence isn't shrinking, it's growing. You're not going to hear that on CNN or Fox News or anywhere else, but it's growing because Christ said it would. We live in a time when this prophecy is actually being fulfilled. I mean, it's amazing when you stop and think about it, that Christianity began with just this small group, 12 guys. And, you know, they were fishermen. And as I've said before, they weren't really even good at that because every time Jesus addressed them, they were always, they weren't fishing, they were usually mending their nets, (laughs) So he, he kind of pulled together these people who were not the greatest CEOs or the greatest brains on the block or whatever. And he said, you know what? You're going to be the beginning of something that is going to affect the entire history of the world. And that's what it's become today. And that's exactly what these parables in Matthew chapter 13 speak of. They, in a way, they're, they're a prophetic And if this doesn't happen, then we can throw out our Bibles and we can throw out Jesus Christ and we can throw out the church and we can throw out everything. Because if the word of God is not true, then we don't have anything. Amen? I mean, there's nothing else to uh, stand on here. So it's really a a test of the truthfulness of the word of God to see what Christ said would happen to these 12 guys. That they're going to start something that's going to have an effect, an influence. It's going to be worldwide. And they were anticipating that. The Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the prophets constantly predicted over and over and over that the kingdom of God would eventually come down to earth and it would encompass the entire globe. You can read that in various Old Testament passages. They constantly say that Jesus Christ was to be God's representative, that he was the greater son of David, that he was the anointed one, the Messiah, the king, That's what the book of Matthew has shown us, that Christ is the king and that eventually he's going to sit on a throne in the city of Jerusalem and he is going to rule the world. Now, for some of you, that may sound like fairy tales or some kind of a comic book thing or something that's really not going to happen. It's going to happen. And in the prophesied coming kingdom, there's going to be worldwide peace, the Bible says. Everybody wants peace. Peace, peace, peace. Everybody wants peace. Well, there's not going to be peace until Christ establishes peace. See, it's just the same thing with us today. There's people in our world today that are constantly looking for peace. They're looking for satisfaction. They're looking for something to heal the the broken heart that they have as a result of their sin. And they're trying to shove stuff into their lives, success, money, wealth, health, whatever it may be. And nothing seems to work. Because Christ is the only one that can bring that kind of peace. Christ is the only one that can can come into your life and put things the way he intended them to be. And that's going to happen one day in a physical way. Christ is going to come to earth and rule and reign, and there's going to be worldwide peace. There's not going to be any more crime. I was joking with my brother the other day. They're staying at a hotel down there in El Camino, and he said, well, we're going to pick them up, and he's. Paul said, well, I'll just wait out front. I said, well, be careful out there. I don't know what kind of characters hang around out there. You know, there's crime everywhere. You have shootings, if not weekly, at least monthly here in Redwood City. Gang shootings, all sorts of things going on. Well, in the kingdom, when he establishes it here on earth, there's not going to be that. There's not going to be poverty. There's going to be the alleviation of any kind of suffering. There's not going to be any death. I think it was Paul yesterday that said, you know, in his prayer, and may he have 50 more years. I don't know, but the idea of being 100 years of age doesn't really appeal to me. <laughs> so I was almost going to say, hey, wait a minute. Don't pray that. I want to go be with the Lord. I don't want to be hobbling around 100 years old. But you know what? That's up to God, right? If he gives me another 50 years, he gives me another 50 years. If he gives me another two minutes, I mean, we could drop dead right now. Who knows? He is to be ready. But he says that there's going to be a time when there's going to be salvation among all the nations, even including the Jewish people. The Jewish people at this point are going to come and recognize Christ as their Messiah, their Savior. And in this kingdom, Christ is going to be revered. He's going to be honored as king. And all the, the people who rebel against him, all the blasphemers are going to be ultimately judged and destroyed. That's what the Bible says. In the book of Micah, in the Old Testament, prophet chapter 4, I just want to read these verses to you, because this gives us a glimpse of what this kingdom is going to be like. Micah chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. And he And and shall be exalted above the hills, and the peoples shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem." And he shall judge between many people and rebuke strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords, you've probably heard this, into plowshares. And their spears into pruning hooks. In other words, war is going to be gone. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree. And no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all people walk, each in the name of his God. But we walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. That's what the Bible says is going to happen. So the disciples had an anticipation of that in their hearts when Christ came and established himself as their Messiah. I mean, can you imagine? They're thinking, okay, he's going to bring the kingdom of God to earth. All this that we just read about is going to happen. And they began to get excited. They began to wonder, well, when's he going to do it? He's doing all these miraculous signs. He's proving us that he has supernatural powers. Even his enemies admitted that. And they said, when is the time going to come when the world will come to the feet of the Messiah? And all those who are going to rebel are going to be rebuked by the Lord. When will that time come? See, they lived in anticipation of that prophecy being fulfilled in Christ's time. So when he came, and none of those things happened as they expected, when they looked at Christ and they saw him being arrested, and they thought, what are you doing? Why aren't you raising us up? Look at all the people that are following you. We could wipe them out. Look at your miraculous power. He healed basically everybody he came across. He raised people from the dead. I mean, they knew he had supernatural power. Even his enemies knew that, the Pharisees. We read about in chapter 12 how they blasphemed him. They said, well, we can't really argue with the fact that you're doing something supernatural because we're seeing it. We see it. We see you healing people, we see you raising people from the dead. We can't argue the fact of that, but you know what? We're going to say that you don't do it by God's power, but you're doing it by whose power? Satan's power. Can you imagine they attributed the power of God and Jesus Christ to the enemy of God, Satan? That's how lost they were. And when you get to that point, that's why he says, you know what? That's a sin that's unforgivable. When you get to the point when you're rejecting who Jesus Christ is, there's no more hope. There's no door B. There's no plan B. There's nothing else. The Bible clearly says there's one name under heaven given among men whereby men must be saved. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, that sounds narrow. It is narrow. That's the whole point. Christ wants, God wants people to come to him through his son and through the sacrifice of his son. So when he didn't sit on a throne in their presence and he didn't overthrow the Roman government which was just burdening them down as a Jewish people and there was still war going on and people weren't beating their, pl- their, their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks the disciples kind of stepped back and said, wait a minute, what's going on here? Why isn't this happening? And because the Jewish people didn't see the fulfillment in Christ. They said, "You know what? We don't think you're who you said you are. You're not doing what the prophets told us, told us that you would do." And so you had a multitude of people following Jesus in support of him, and overnight it turned. Remember, Palm Sunday, he's coming into Jerusalem and people are laying down, palm branches. Boy, they're just, Hosanna, Hosanna. I mean, they're and overnight, literally almost, they turned on him and they were calling for his execution. Because they began to question, well, wait, he's not doing anything. He's just going along with this program. He's just gonna let him kill him. The Messiah that we read about, the king that we read about in the Old Testament, wouldn't do that. He would The Bible says that he's going to rebuke the wrongdoers and put everything, carry justice and rule with a a rod of iron. And that's what they expected Christ to do. And when Christ didn't do that, they rejected him as the king, and therefore they rejected the kingdom. And so God had to say, okay, you know what? The kingdom is on hold right now. You can't have a kingdom without a king. You're rejecting my son as king, therefore This kingdom is going to be established later. And that's what we know is the second coming of Christ. Christ is going to come back to earth, and he's going to rule and reign here on earth for a thousand years. The Bible says that. And, you know, I mean, you start reading Bible prophecy, and you see how things are lining up politically. Do you ever think about why is all this attention on Israel, this little puny little country, over there, what is everybody fighting over it for? Because God said it would happen, that's why. It's very clear. But see, today, we don't live in the physical kingdom here on earth. We live on in the kingdom of God that is within our hearts as believers. That's why Romans, Paul says in Romans chapter 14, verse 17, For the kingdom of God is not of food and drink, That's not what it's talking about, but it's of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's an internal kingdom right now. It will be an external kingdom when Christ comes back, but right now, for this period of time, known as the church age, God's kingdom is ruled and reigned. It's mediated through the hearts of believers. In Luke chapter 17 when the Pharisees, verse twenty, when the Pharisees were asking Christ, they said, "If you're a king, where's your kingdom?" They were saying, "Okay, you're saying you're the king of the Jews. Well, where's your kingdom?" And he answered them, and he said, "Behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you." In other words, you know what? The kingdom of God is standing right in front of you, and you can't even see it, despite your face. I mean, you, you know, it's right there in front of you, and they couldn't discern that the kingdom was not of human perception. Even though they couldn't do that, he was still the king. That didn't change anything. And the disciples believed that he was the king. They followed him. Well, 11 of them did anyway. But they still wondered where the kingdom was. They still were pondering that in their mind. Okay, he's the king, we're committed to Christ, but where's this kingdom that's supposed to be established? And so Christ in chapter 13 of Matthew says, you know what? I need to share some more information about the kingdom with my disciples because they're not getting it. (laughs) They're still expecting me to kind of raise up and overthrow the Roman government right now. That's not going to happen right now. It's going to happen later. So I need to explain to them how the kingdom works. And during this time, the kingdom will be different than what it will ultimately become. And so throughout Matthew chapter 17, he goes through seven parables, and he talks about the nature of the kingdom. The first two parables we already looked at, the parable of the soils and the parables of the the wheat and the tares, or the weeds. And the parable of the soils basically said, you know what? That there's going to be a soil that rejects the gospel. Even in the kingdom, there's going to be three out of four that reject the gospel. And that was unfounded to the disciples. They thought, no, in the kingdom, everybody's going to accept. No, it's not. That's not the way it's going to be. And the second parable, about the nature, he talks about the the wheat and the tares, and see, his disciples were expecting Christ to, you know what, those Pharisees are mocking you, they're blaspheming you, why aren't you just calling down fire from heaven on them? Why aren't you just zapping them? They couldn't understand the age of grace in which we live. They didn't get it. And so Christ used a parable of the wheat and the tares, and the wheat represents believers, and the tares represent unbelievers. And he says, you know what, Because of what's going on in the world and the state of the kingdom, these are going to grow side by side. See, they wanted to go out in the parable. It says they want to go out and pull out the weeds. They want to go out and take care of the tares. And Christ says, no, 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 let them grow. Let them mature. We'll take care of that in time. So it talked about the nature of the kingdom. That there's going to be both good and evil. In that age. That we live in. Well, these parables here, the mustard seed and the leaven speak of the power of the kingdom. And what Jesus is trying to tell us is that in spite of all this coexisting good and evil in the kingdom, in spite of all that, in spite of all the tremendous power of sin and Satan in the world we see today, you know what, the power of the kingdom is so great that it's going to continue to grow in spite of all that. I don't know about you, but that encourages my heart to know that God is at work, even though you look, you know, if you watch the news, I mean, it can be rather depressing. You just wonder, what's going on in this world? It can be very depressing. And you can begin to believe the lie that, you know what, maybe God's losing. Maybe we're not going to win this. Well, I read the end of the book. We win, and that settles it for me. Eventually, God's going to work out his plan here on planet Earth. Just because three of the four soils will reject the gospel and Satan throws in tares or weeds with the wheat, that doesn't mean the kingdom is going to be overrun by evil. And he wanted his disciples, this small group of believers who were starting the church, to know that. It's not going to be a cakewalk. It's not going to be easy. You know, there's so much garbage out there today in the, in, labeled as Christianity. I mean, you have people talking about, you know, well, you know, your best life now, and all this, you know, garbage, basically, is what it is. That's not what Christ taught. And they use words that are very soothing, and they draw people in by the thousands. But Christ says here, from a very small beginning, like a mustard seed or like a piece of leaven, the kingdom is going to grow. And like a little piece of leaven, it's going to have this massive influence and just this, this pile of dough, as we know, is the kingdom. It's going to permeate and influence everything. And those are messages of hope, or they should be. So the first two parables told us that evil will be allowed to continue on in the world and, you know, sometimes you just, I don't know if you're like me, you driving on the freeway or whatever, you just, you know, sometimes you just want God to get all the bad people, you know. I mean, gotta say idiot, the way he's driving or whatever, you know. If I did that, I'd get a ticket. Why, why does he get away with it? You know, uh, things like that. I mean, sometimes you just wish God would just zap people. Well, that's kind of how the disciples felt. That's how David felt in the Old Testament. He was constantly kind of wondering why, God, aren't you taking care of my enemies? But the first two parables said, no, we're not going to do that. That's not judgment time now. God's the executioner. He's going to take care of that. Right now, we're living in a time of grace. We're living in a time of grace, beloved, and that's why it's such a great time to come to Christ. It's such a great time to bow your knee, your heart, to the Lord Jesus Christ and, and commit your life to him and believe in the work that he did for you to turn from your sin, and to acknowledge that he and he alone is the only means of salvation for you. Because that grace is available. There's going to come a day when you will bow your knee, you will bow your heart to Christ, but it's not going to be as Savior. He's going to come back as your judge. And at that point, it will be too late. Grace will not be extended beyond that point. And so we have to understand that this parable that we're looking at today of the leaven has been very misunderstood by a lot of people. Even though it's just one verse, it's it's a hard message to work through because there's, there's just a lot of underlying stuff that you have to get before you understand this parable. And so we want to kind of walk through it. The first parable we looked at last week talked about the external power of the kingdom. Well, today we want to look at the internal power of the kingdom. And he shows that to us in verse 33. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid three measures of meal, in three measures of meal, till the whole was leaven. See, our Lord always used illustrations, he always used parables that people could relate to. I mean, that's the purpose of these things, is so that people could understand when when he told a story, he was laying down a physical representation, illustration of a spiritual truth. That was his purpose. And so they knew exactly what he was talking about. If you're a baker, you probably read this and go, yeah, I get it. That makes sense. If you're not a baker, maybe you don't even know what leaven is. You stop and think, while he was growing up, he must have seen his mother make bread many times. And he would see her using this yeast, leaven, sourdough, some people call it, in the process. And what they would do is, the person making the bread would take a batch of dough and prepare it and knead it, and then they would take a piece of what they called the sour, or the fermented dough, the leavened dough, from a previous loaf that they kept. And they'd put it in the, the new loaf. They'd just smush it down in there and mix it all up again. And that leaven would cause this new lo- loaf to begin to, to, to ferment, for, ferment and kind of bubble up. Have you ever seen a, a, a piece of dough that's, that's leavened and it begins to kind of, you know, you put a cloth over it and you come back and it's all, it looks like it's going to pop. And his point is that it would permeate the whole loaf and it would cause it to rise. And these people probably saw this happen daily because bread was a very basic staple of their appetite. And he says here, the size of the piece of leaven that you'd put in this new loaf would be small. You don't, you know, if you're, if you're baking a, a piece of bread, I mean, I've done some baking, you don't use equal amounts of, of yeast and equal amounts of flour. I mean, I don't know what would happen if you did that, but it'd probably be a big mess. You'd probably have dough everywhere, who knows? But it was common at that time to prepare large amounts of bread because it was the staple of life. There had to be enough to feed large families and any servants they had and everything. So, you know, he's he's really pointing out here that this this is a massive amount of dough. Three measures of meal is, is equivalent to a lot of bread. And the amount of dough that was being leavened here was obviously pretty big. But you notice that it says that he, they put it down into the dough. You put it down into it. You don't take a loaf of dough and take yeast and pour it next to it and just let it sit there. That's not going to do anything. What do you have to do? You have to take the leaven, the yeast, and put it into the dough. And that's what he's talking about here. And that large amount of meal and that little piece of leaven, the influence is just incredible. Notice that the parable says that a woman is the one making the bread. Now, this isn't a male chauvinist thing or anything, but back in their culture, that's what would happen. The woman would, would work around the oven, whatever. The, the man would usually out in the fields working, whatever. That's just how, how it operated. Have you ever had a piece of unleavened bread? If you had communion, you have. Usually it's unleavened bread. Do you like it? I remember we had a dear lady in our church one time. We were having communion. She says, why do they always serve this stale bread? I mean, she said it about that loud, you know, while everybody's contemplating communion. <laughs> and I thought, and they don't even give you wine. This is grape juice, you know. It was a rather interesting communion service we had. But, you know, if I had the choice to eat leavened bread versus unleavened bread, I would always pick leavened bread. Think about it. It's warm, it's airy, soft, put butter on it. Okay, I'm going to be quiet because you're probably going to leave and go get something to eat. But the idea here is that the leaven has to be injected into this bread before it can begin to permeate it and begin to work. And they all understood this illustration he was using. But there's two things I want you just to notice quickly about leaven. One small amount can influence a massive amount of dough. And secondly, it influences the dough, I think, in a positive way, as I just stated. I'd rather eat leavened bread than unleavened bread. Well, what are the lessons that we can learn from this parable? That's basically what the parable is. That's the instruction. Well, Let's look at the interpretation of it. What does it mean? Well, first of all, I think that what he's talking here is that the influence of the kingdom is going to be great. Even though it's going to start small, it's going to have a lot of influence. The power of the kingdom is great. Just a tiny bit of leaven influences the whole mass of dough. And that's the illustration he's using for us. The measures of meal, the dough, represents the world, obviously. And when you plant the kingdom of God, the leaven in the middle of the world is going to eventually influence it because the power of the kingdom of heaven is just a supernatural power, even though it may be small at first. Disciples, I want you to know this is going to grow and it's going to grow and you're going to influence the entire world. Now, I said that there's a lot of misinterpretation about this parable and the reason is simply this. A lot of people, when they see the word leaven, what do they think? sin. They think of evil. That's the first thing. That's what I was always taught. Every you see 11 in the Bible, that means evil. That means sin. Well, I began to question that and I thought, well, wait a minute. Is that true? They believe that the parable is teaching that evil is going to be in the kingdom of God, kind of influencing it. That's what they believe it teaches. But that doesn't really fit what Jesus is saying here. How is that encouraging to the disciples? <laughs> that wouldn't be encouraging to me the first two parables, he talked about evil in the world. And then the next two parables, he talks about the power of the kingdom overcoming evil. And so the interpretation that the leaven represents evil, it's really inconsistent with what Jesus is saying here. But then, in this parable, he says the kingdom of heaven is like what? Leaven. Isn't that what it says? That's what it says. So if you believe that leaven is sin or evil, are you telling me that Jesus is saying, yeah, my kingdom is going to be sin? <laughs> My kingdom is going to be evil. That doesn't make any sense. It's obvious that the kingdom of God is being likened to leaven in this parable and you don't have to be, you know, the brightest bulb on the block to figure out that Christ isn't saying that his kingdom is going to be sinful. And those who believe that leaven to represent evil in this parable base their argument basically on this. Almost every other time, leaven is mentioned in the New Testament. It's always referred, it always refers to evil. You can search it out yourself. And to be consistent, they say, well, if it refers to evil everywhere else, in this parable, it must be referred to evil too. Well, you can't use that kind of argument. They say that Jesus even used leaven to refer to evil. And they look at verses like Luke 12, 1, where Jesus says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. See, when Jesus said that, he wasn't making leaven represent the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. He was saying, here's what I want you to understand. It represents the influence of the Pharisees' hypocrisy. That's what he wanted them to understand. See, the use of leaven is an analogy that's appropriate only when you used it as far as its permeating influence. You can't make leaven sin. That wouldn't be biblically correct. And so the point of using leaven to describe the hypocrisy of the the Pharisees was to show that their hypocrisy permeated everything they did. And you can see that time and time again as you look through the Gospels. So leaven is not an illustration of sin, It is an illustration of permeation, of the power of influence, good or bad. See, that's very key. You have to understand that, to understand what Jesus is saying here. You can't take analogies and make absolutes out of them. You can't say, well, he referred to leaven over here and called it evil, so I guess it's just evil everywhere. No, that's, that's not proper. Leaven is used only as an analogy as far as its influence goes. And the reason we know that is because it's it's used throughout the Bible, even in the Old Testament, when they had the, the Feast of Pentecost, they were commanded to offer up to God not unleavened bread, but leavened bread. Well, why would God, if it represented evil, tell his people to offer him sinful bread? a sinful offering, God wouldn't do that if leaven represented evil and evil alone. So it doesn't always refer to something that's evil. Very basic principle you have to understand. And even in relation to salvation, if you you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 It kind of gives us a little input about the permeating influence of leaven. Look at what he says in verse 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. He says, Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven, there's the word, leavens the whole lump? (laughs) A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And he's making just a kind of a simple proverbial statement here. He's saying a little thing can have a lot of influence. We use that as saying, well, evil, but it basically means influence there. Leaven is neutral. Leaven is not good or bad. It's just showing basically influence. It can be evil influence or it can be good influence. And when it comes to bread, leaven really makes bread, in my opinion, a lot better. And in verse 7, look at what he says, the same 1 Corinthians 5, he goes on, he says, Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump. What's he doing? He's giving us a picture of salvation here. In other words, he's saying to the Corinthians, he says, you know what, you're Christians now. You're each a new lump of dough. Don't be putting this old stuff, this old leaven, into your new lump of dough. You, he's saying that you've been saved from an old loaf. You've been transformed into something new. Don't be reaching back into that old loaf and grabbing that, that old leaven and put it in this new, new lump. Paul's telling the Corinthians that because they're new creations in Christ, they're not allowed to allow their former lives to influence their new lives. That's the the purpose there. He's talking about influence. It's a great illustration of salvation. When you come to Christ, there's, there's kind of a cutting of the ties. There's new things that influence you. And he's telling them to... Break that continuity from your old life. And look at what he says. He says, For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He's talking about basically our that our, our separation onto Christ. He uses the Passover as an example. We know the Passover, the, the angel of death would pass over the houses that, that would have the, the blood on the mantle. And after the, the Passover, they basically were instructed to have a feast And it was to be celebrated over seven days, and they were instructed to have unleavened bread for seven days. Do you ever question why? After that, they could eat leavened bread. Why would the Lord say, okay, for seven days, after you you leave Egypt, I want you to have a feast in honor of your leaving your exodus, and you're going to, for seven days, eat unleavened bread? It was an illustration. He was saying, you know what? You had a lot of ties in Egypt in your old life, and I'm calling you out of that. And I don't want you bringing, reaching back in there and grabbing leaven and putting it in your new life here. Leave it alone. So for seven days, I want you to eat unleavened bread. I don't want any influence from Egypt at all. And that's what he's saying here in 1 Corinthians. God was saying, you're leaving Egypt. You're a new people going into the promised land. Therefore, don't make leavened bread. Because if you do, the leaven's going to come from your old life. Unleavened bread was a symbol of the Israelites, you might say, disconnection with Egypt. And after the seven days, the Passover feast was over, and what did they do? Well, then they were allowed to eat as much leavened bread as they wanted. In Leviticus chapter 23, God told them to offer him leavened bread. And so we know that it doesn't always represent evil. Well, the way leaven is used symbolically in the Bible is very broad. You can see it used in a lot of different ways. Um, It's true that in the New Testament it speaks of evil and its influence, but that's not always the case. That doesn't mean that God can't speak of leaven and use it for influence for good, as he does here. And so let's talk about the influence of, of level just quickly here. Stop and think about it. In a sense, Christianity kind of stirs up the world. Would you, would you agree? I mean, you know, you mentioned the name of Christ. What happens? Whoa, you know, that's not politically correct. I remember going down to the city council and, and being called to the carpet because I ended my prayer in Jesus' name or in, in the name of my Lord and, or our Lord and Savior Jesus' name. Somebody on the city council heard that. They were offended because they were Jewish, and they pointed out to me before the next time I was to pray, you know, he's not my Lord and Savior. You're using the words our Lord and Savior. And, you know, I got kind of upset, and I thought, well, I'll just not pray anymore. I'm not going to play these games. But I thought, you know, I'll, I'll stick with my commitment one more time, and I went down, and I ended my prayer, because his problem was the word are. I just ended my prayer in the name of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he got got a city council member got upset at me in a little way, but he thought about what I did, and he came up and thanked me afterwards, because I was being sensitive to him. (laughs) But you stop and think of the influence of leaven. Christianity kind of stirs up the world, just like leaven does. I mean, there's wars and wars and wars over the issues of Christianity. And we've been disturbing the world for about 2,000 years, from a start of... Twelve disciples banded together in Jerusalem, and then 120. And then all of a sudden, you see millions, millions across the face of the earth who have been influenced by Christianity. Stop and think about it. All the social advances, all the legal, the jurisprudence system, if you've ever studied that, welfare systems, education, art, music, all those have had some relation of influence of Christianity all the benevolent, the caring programs, societies that help the poor, the downtrodden, the depressed, they all come out of the spirit of Christ. That's not a coincidence. All you have to do is look around and notice how people are treated in countries of the world that have never been touched by Christianity. See, the world has been leavened and influenced dramatically by Christ. And this parable is a parable of hope for a little group of discouraged disciples that thought the kingdom was just not going to happen. And Jesus wanted them to understand, no, just hang in there. Because you're going to have an impact that's going to blow your minds eventually. And we need to be reminded of that ourselves. It's not only an influence of the, the kingdom. Secondly, it's an influence of the kingdom from within Positive influence of the kingdom comes from within the world. God planted, it says, his leaven inside the world. See, a lot of times people in churches have issues with the world. They think that it's just, you know, us four no more. And, you know, we have these four walls. And, boy, the the world is the evil people that live outside these four walls. And we shouldn't talk to them. We shouldn't hang around them. We shouldn't do anything. Well, all you got to do is look at the life of Christ. Who do you hang around with? Sinners, prostitutes drunkards, tax collectors. He went out of his way to spend time with the seedy people of his society. And we should do the same. Because we have the message of the gospel that can help them. See, we are extensions of Christ. He dwells in us. Galatians chapter 2, Paul writes in verse 20, For the life I live now I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's not I who lives, but who? Christ lives in me. So as we leave this building today and we go out into this dark, dying, sinful world, which it is, we need to stop and say, what kind of influence are we having? Are we having the kind of influence that's like this leaven? Are we influencing for good the people around us at work, on our jobs, at our school, wherever it may be? Christianity began very small. But you know what? I read a st- statistic the other day, there's 2.1 billion people in the world today who identify themselves as Christian. Islam's the second with 1.5 billion. Nearly one person out of every three claims to be a Christian. Who, whether they are or not, that's up to God. But you can understand the influence of this is incredible. There are over 100,000 Christian missionaries in the world today. Giving up their freedom at their home and their time with their families or whatever and going to a foreign land and sharing the gospel of Christ and sacrifice. I mean, there's people meeting in communist nations where Christianity is outlawed today. And the church is thriving. You're you're not going to read that on the news, but it is. I mean, the influence of Christ is truly amazing. I want to ask you this morning, has he influenced your heart? Has he influenced you? Have you come to a point in your life where you have looked at your life and said, you know what, I am a sinner. I don't do everything perfect. I don't do everything right. And I do need forgiveness. If God is showing you that, by all means, you need to turn to the Savior in this age of grace and bear your heart to him and ask him. God, forgive me. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. I may not have all the answers, but God, one thing I know is that you did send your son, and the Bible says that you sent him to die for me. Why you do such a thing, I don't have a clue. But your word says that I need to put my faith, my trust in your son and your son alone for the forgiveness of my sin. And if I do that, God, you say that you're going to be my savior. That you're going to save me from everlasting torment in a place called hell that's a very real place. This parable is encouraging to us as believers, but it can also be encouraging to even those who aren't, because we still have opportunity to respond. In Matthew 16:18, Christ said, he promised, he says, I will build my church. <laughs> I love this verse. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You know what? Christ is building his church. I mean, you know what? We might not be the biggest church on the block. Who cares? Christ is still building his church. I'm not in a competition. I'm not here to have a church of 500 people. I mean, if that was the purpose, we could do that real quick. That's not the purpose. The purpose is to edify the church, to edify believers, to draw believers together on a day of the week called Sunday. The first day of the week is... Christ was risen from the dead and and, and to build ourselves up so we can go out into a lost and dying world and permeate, influence it in a positive way for his son, Jesus Christ. One day the kingdom of this world is going to become the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we should be praying, come, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Because Christianity is going to win and Jesus is going to reign and evil will be destroyed and evil men will be sent to eternal hell, and the kingdom of God will come to its eternal fullness. That's a parable of hope that we can put our faith and trust in. And I pray that it encourages your heart this morning. Let's close with a word of prayer, and we'll just close with a song as well after our prayer. Father, we thank you for our word this morning. Lord, I know that, uh, I mean, just in all honesty, I, I hope I made sense this morning what I spoke. Um, Lord, I pray that you uh, take your word and that you hide it in the hearts of those who know you. And I pray for those who don't, I pray that it would permeate their hearts, that it would show them their need of a Savior, that they would be willing to bow their knee today, even today, to you as Lord and Savior. Lord, we thank you for our time together. Lord, I, I just personally thank you for it. Just a real uh, incredible weekend. And Father, I just thank you for your your grace in our lives and your mercy. And I pray that if anyone needs to cry out to you this morning, God, save me, be merciful to me, a sinner. That that would be the prayer of their heart. That's a prayer that you will answer. And Lord, we trust you with that. And we, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' precious name, all God's people said, amen.